Hello everyone, it's January 19th, 2021. Solar panels, those things are useful in space, especially if you're a giant space station. So I guess it's not surprising that the ISS is getting an upgrade with some new ones, and they're not like the old ones. So let's talk about what's new and different and liftoff. To the Tower. Welcome to episode 293 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. I guess we have a pretty decent sized show, so we just want to get straight into it. There is one news item that perhaps we could, that I could briefly mention that we're not going to talk about, which is uh, Blue Origin did a test launch of its new Shepard a couple days ago. Mm. And apparently, at least from headlines that I'm, I'm reading, they might be flying paying passengers into space as early as April, or at least the first passengers, I should say, not paying one. So I guess not actual customers, but yeah, it's nice t- to see that progress. Pilots. Yeah. yeah, test pilots. That's progress. Well, you know, I'm still waiting on New Glenn. That's the big one that <laughs> I'm still salty about and probably will be for years to come as <laughs> nothing develops from that. All right. So I guess we can move on, huh? I know. I think I'm just being harsh. I know. I'm being harsh. So I guess we should do the news, huh? The International Space Station is getting a solar panel upgrade, which I think is probably, I don't know if it's overdue, but I can definitely see how it's something that needs to be done because these solar panels are what, like over 20 years old or something? Mm -hmm. Or maybe not quite that old. I mean, I think it depends on the panels, The oldest one's just about 20, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they've been up there for a while and solar panels do degrade with time. And I don't know what the output of these ones were when they were brand new. Um, Perhaps you could shed some light on that, but I imagine they've gone down. Yeah, it hasn't degraded too too bad i don't i don't believe solar panels are, are pretty good it's batteries that really degrade without knowing details i can imagine anything that's based on like you know building charge and then losing it and then building charge and losing it that that can just have a wear down over time so well so iss the the saw they call it the uh, um saw is a solar array wing and um the way that they measure like it's its actual output is in terms of short circuit current. So, you know, normally you have all of these uh, power storage and management uh, chains that run from the saw all the way to, you know, whatever outlet inside the ISS that you're actually pulling power from. And so uh, measuring the short circuit current is like, what's actually coming off of the solar array. Um, and so when they were designing them, they were estimating a 3% degradation in the short circuit current. Um, and right now we're actually seeing um, something like 0.2 to 0.5%. So it's, it's really not bad. Um, but, you know, after 20 years and, you know, compounding percentages, yeah, it's, you know, it would be nice to, to add some power, but also, you know, our power consumption or our power demands are going up as well. So that's true. Station has grown quite a bit. <laughs> and I, I'm really excited to see this because, um, Dennis, you started building, uh, building our notes on this topic. And this was when you put that in there, uh, literally that was the first time I had heard anything about this plan. And I'm a huge, uh, ISS, uh, technical detail junkie. And we haven't done a lot talking about the ISS recently. And I'm really excited to get into this. Uh, the, the electrical systems or well, the, the, the solar array, um, assemblies are just, they're fascinating to me. Like they're, they're beautiful to look at. They are mind bogglingly large. Um, and they're something that we don't get to touch very often, right? It's, it's very rare that you actually have astronauts 
um, working, you know, on such a far end of the truss, right? To get to the, um, to the P6 and S6 truss segments, um, you actually need an extender, uh, on your safety harness on your, on your cable. Uh, cause it's, it's that far out there. It's a long hike. Um, so Dennis, since you wrote most of this, I'm going to let you take over, but before I do that, I wanted to give a quick overview of what we're going to be talking about or the, the structures on station, just to kind of give us a little bit of a roadmap because we're doing mm-hmm. this without visual aids. Now, of course, <laughs> if you are not driving, you're, if you're not doing anything that requires a, <laughs> attention from your visual systems, you can go into our show notes. There's going to be a link uh, to a diagram um, that talks about all of the different uh, power channels and shows you what's where and gives you a reminder of what trust segments are where. But I'm going to try to do my best to describe it here for uh, the folks who are driving. So the truss is at, it's per, it runs perpendicular to the long inhabitable uh, axis of the station, right? And um, in the middle is the Z1 and the Z0 truss segments. They're really small. They- Z1 and S0. <laughs> it's, it's so inconsistent. Yeah. <laughs> See, it's, it's been a while. So Z1, um, is what actually contacts, uh, the station. Um, it, it's actually connected to a common birthing mechanism, uh, on the top of, is that unity? I think that's mm-hmm. unity. And what's really cool. I, I love the, the, uh, Z1 truss because it actually has a pressurized section. So you can actually go up into the truss. I mean, it's tiny. It's a tiny little storage closet, but it's a pressurized section where all of the power. Actually, that's, I don't believe that's actually true. There, there are some pass throughs for power, but I don't, I don't remember if all of the power goes through that segment or if they go directly into Unity. And then, of course, there, there are external payloads. I believe that also get power directly from Z1. Maybe I shouldn't say any of this because I don't remember the details and uh, I, I don't want to mislead people. But um, yeah, it's got a little tiny pressurized section that you can float up into. And then on top of that is S0. And then on either side of S0 are the more standard nomenclature truss segments. Um, so to starboard, you get S1 through S6. And on uh, port, you get P1 through P6. Uh, P1 and S1 are closest to the center. Uh, P6 and S6 are farthest to the outsides. Okay, so one of the important uh, landmarks that you're going to have to be aware of is the SARGE, the solar alpha rotary joint. That is between the uh, four and six segments, uh, or the, the, four, the three and four segments, so P3 and P4, S3 and S4. And that allows the truss to rotate along its long axis. And it's called the alpha rotary joint because that direction follows the alpha angle of the sun. That's the direction that the, that changes as you orbit the earth, right? Um, so sort of, um, the day night sweep that the sun appears to follow through the sky relative to the earth, not relative to the stars. Um, and so the solar alpha ready joint, uh, spins, um, once every orbit or, you know, 360 degrees every orbit. And then the other, I don't know if, if I would call it a landmark, but then you, then you have P4 
and P6. Uh, in between them, of course, is, is P5, but we're going to ignore that for a sec. P4 and P6 and S4 and S6 are the truss segments with arrays actually sticking out of them. And then, of course, the arrays themselves rotate, um, and that's called the solar beta rotary joint. Um, and the beta angle is the angle that changes as the earth goes around the sun. And so beta angle will seem more familiar when we talk about um, being able to do power hungry activities on station. Um, because when you're at a low beta angle, meaning that the sun is occluded or it is at a low angle for most of your orbit, um, that's when the solar or the power reserves on station are, are lowest. Is that pretty good? Do we want to point out any other uh, major landmarks or, or, or truss anatomy before before you move on, Dennis? <laughs> Just one thing that I think was useful for me was keep, like when you want to keep track of the numbers, it depends on whether you're talking about one of these uh. saws or a photovoltaic module or a power channel or a photovoltaic blanket. Like they're all different things because there could either be four, eight, or 16, depending on what mm. you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And that led to some personal confusion. So uh, there's the four photovoltaic modules. So that's like you were saying, the, the, the pair of arrays at S6, the pair of arrays at S4, at P4 and P6. And like I said, there's a pair of arrays. So that means there's eight of these arrays, two for each of these modules. And then if you look carefully at the arrays though, you notice, right? It looks like they've got two, you know, kind of lines of solar panels. And so those are the uh, photovoltaic blankets. So an array has two lines of panels, and then each uh, there's a pair of each array. So that's how that works. So we can talk about just, you know, S6, S4, P4, and P6, where there's only four things there, but each of those has two arrays. So that's why there's eight legacy, old school, currently operating and functioning arrays. Does that, does that sound useful to, <laughs> to kind of <Yeah>. highlight? <laughs> Because these these new arrays, it's it's it, they're not gonna we're not gonna be seeing uh, the you know the station when these get installed uh, with even more arrays now sticking out in different locations. These are actually gonna be placed in front of existing solar array wings, which I think is it it's an interesting choice, but it makes sense. Uh, it, it definitely uh, balances you know yeah you're gonna lose some of the ability of those original uh, arrays to collect light, but at the same time you're gonna be able to integrate the new ones into the systems that already exists so much easier because, mm -hmm. you know, you're putting them right in front of, you know, the existing arrays. Well, and I, I think just mechanically speaking, um, the new arrays, they're called the I IROSA arrays or maybe IROSA arrays. They are actually um, going to be on top of the solar beta rotary joint so that they can rotate with the original saws. And if you just think about how much space uh, these darn things take up, unless you're actually going to fold up one of the old arrays, there's nowhere where you can put a new array and have it articulate and have uh, the old saws articulate. Um, that is, unless you um, do something like the Russian segment solar arrays, which have to be tiny, they don't get two axes of rotation. And so like that, this just, it makes a lot of sense. Totally. And like you mentioned, right, that th these ones are, uh, 
uh, or the existing arrays are, are, have been around for a long time. And so, you know, technology has progressed a lot. And so these new ones are efficient enough that even though you're going to, yeah, uh, block some of that collecting area, uh, that's, that's okay because you're now replacing it with a more efficient, uh, uh, array. So, okay, boy, uh, I got it wrong. It's the Sarge, the solar alpha rotary joint. It's not called the beta. Uh, the solar beta rotary joint is called the beta gimbal assembly or the BGA. <laughs> so like, come like we just talked about all the um, difficult little inconsistencies that you have to keep a track of. And there's, there's another one, <laughs> the BGA. Oh, thanks. I, I didn't catch that when you said, it. I just was listening for beta, I guess. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah, of course you got the alpha, which turns more things and then the beta, which turns less. That's how I remember it. But, I, yeah, I forget that those are actually related to the uh, the angles of the sun on the sky. Yeah, so so the first uh, I, I thought this was interesting because the oldest one, right? You remember uh, if if we recall to the uh, assembly of station, right? The history behind it. The very first, like I think it kind of looked a little clunky and certainly not as elegant, and beautiful as the station looks now. But you know, the first um, you know solar array, array wing was actually put on the Z1 truss that Ben talked about before. And so it was at the zenith end of the station and kind of fanned out in that, you know, direction. And it basically took until they had plopped the, uh, the P6 truss down before they could then translate it over there. And this was the one that, you know, it worked fine when it was at the Z1, uh, truss, but then when they translated over to P6 and then tried to reopen it again, that's when you had the tear. Uh, which made it to one of our, uh, you know, this week in spaceflight histories for sure. Uh, I remember Ben talking about that, and they had to literally use right the little. It was almost like a, like zip tied it together essentially. And so anyway, yeah, that, those ones are now, you know, not only are they twenty years old, but I guess you know even more relevant is that that's five years past the expected lifetime. And while a lot of times in space things survive, you know, much longer than their expected lifetime, that's still something though you want to be cognizant of, especially with a yeah station that's getting more and more power hungry. And so, um, a, a, a figure that we're, you know, sharing, uh, in the, uh, the show notes includes, uh, if you look carefully at that, you might notice there's something funny happening in the Russian orbital segment there. And that was an idea, uh, I guess it's now, you know, maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago or so, uh, for, uh, the Russians to build what was called the science power platform, which would be at the zenith end of Zvezda, which is kind of sitting, you know, not all the way down, or, yeah, basically all the way down on the, the Russian uh, segment side, uh, where Poisk now is. And so this was essentially going to be something that, you know, Zenith is up, so it would have gone up and then had a fan of uh, solar arrays sticking out there. And I'm not going to try to replicate what counts as an array versus a panel versus a <laughs> cell versus you know, whatever with them. But the upshot is that that was something that was ultimately canceled, but that could have, you know, obviously provided more power to the station um, had that ultimately uh, made it through. And so this is instead where we're going, where we're going to have these eye roses uh, placed in front of the uh, the originals. And so we already talked about how, yeah, they're going to occlude uh, some of the existing arrays, uh, but being more efficient, they don't have to block the whole things. And in fact, it's more like I've seen it reported as a bit more than a half to two thirds. For me, I think a bit more than a half is like 55%, which is significantly less than two thirds. So let's just give that range and let, you know, <laughs> I haven't done the math, but people can basically uh, <laughs> look it up themselves if you're interested. <laughs> so, I mean, they are, they are much smaller. They actually sit between panels. So they're not blocking as much as you would think anyway, because, you know, there is a gap between each strip of panel there. They're not like directly over the whole thing. Exactly. 
So, I mean, that's a pretty neat place to put them. So, yeah, I mean, these new solar panels do not look like the old ones. And I think that that's one thing that's important to point out is that they're actually smaller. Um, mm -hmm. They come in, you know, a single strip that rolls out or a strip. I don't know if, if it, it's a pair of strips. Yeah, a pair. Um, and they just roll out and kind of sort of between the panels or, you know, just over the center between each pair. So, yeah, they don't cover that much of the existing panels. So I think it's a pretty innovative idea. Yeah, that's a great point because, yeah, um, the, the existing panels, if you, if you look at them carefully, right, you know, each array has the two, let's call them strips, right? The blankets, mm -hmm. uh, both will take blankets, the strips uh, side by side. And the way that they, you know, were extended meant that they had to have a little truss structure in between them to give them stability while they were being not rolled out, but accordioned out, I guess. You know what I mean? They were kind of folded in that accordion fashion and then unfolded as that uh, truss kind of pulled away from the base of where the array ultimately sat. And so that truss, you know, that leads to a much larger gap between the strips. But yeah, so like you're saying, David, uh, the, the new ones, the iRoses are going to be, they're not going to map exactly onto the existing arrays. They're going to actually be blocking some of that, you know, useless uh, structural space between the existing arrays. And so it's not as bad as it could have been. So the, the numbers themselves, right? So these, these new ones are uh, going to be 19 by 6 meters, which is 62 by 20 feet in size. So again, these are honking large, you know, if you go and uh, see uh, images of them, you know, next to, you know, people, um, you can get a much better sense of just how giant that is. And yet that's still four times smaller than the existing uh, arrays and 20% uh, lighter, which I guess, you know, that makes that um, being any percent lighter is better though, as far as weight goes, you know what I mean? And so um, the fact that, you know, it's that much smaller, isn't really an issue because I guess the efficiency gains are just that much greater. Yeah. And mass density, like mass volume density is important, but what we really care about is mass to power generation density, mm. the, the power density. And that, and that goes exactly. up, that, that goes up quite a bit, I believe. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that way, I mean, that way you end up with a smaller area and yet, well, no, for, forget well, a smaller, forget a smaller area. If we're talking about mass to power generation, like the area is important for allowing the saws to collect light. But like for most applications, what you really care about is how much mass it is, right? Volume is cheap to fly to space. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the mass that'll get you. That's true. But I was just thinking like, I mean, it's a, not that it's insignificant, but it is sort of, you know, a one-time thing. You fly up there and then, you know, you install it and forget about it. And well, so, you still have to do reboosts. But then I was thinking about that, like you have to do reboosts, but then I was thinking, and I don't know what the, you know, the difference is, but since there's more mass density, do you think that maybe that'll keep them up there longer because of the drag that's imposed on it, them? If, I don't know. If you were hmm. comparing a, a single installation of either iRoses or saws, um, and somehow you could account for the power, or if you didn't care about the power generation differences, yes, these have a higher ballistic coefficient. And it simply comes down to the fact that they impact fewer air molecules um, as they fly through and they contribute more mass. So they have more power as they hit those air molecules. So yeah, you're right. But since they're being installed on top of the saws, yeah. Um, they're, they're not actually contributing much drag at all because most of them is shielded. It's just that little slip in the middle, but they, but they are contributing additional drag. Uh, the, the cumulative effect, I don't believe is going to be positive. I think it'll be more, it'll be positive in the more drag direction, negative in the, uh, fly longer without reboosts direction. Now, this is really great to, <laughs> to get to the, the nitty gritty like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think because, their ballistic coefficient is going to be lower 
than anything else on station, I believe you, it's more or less like averaging ballistic coefficients. So yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure they will, yeah, add drag. I would be shocked if they didn't add drag. Sorry. <laughs> I'll let you get back to it. <laughs> no, I'm sure just, yeah, just because of the, the covering fraction alone, I don't think. Well, I mean, as soon as, as soon as I thought about how little of them is actually presented to, I mean, you know, this is all without considering like night flyer mode and things like that. Even when they're face on to the atmosphere, most, you know, it's only like 50% of them is actually covered. And so even, that's not going to actually increase their ballistic coefficient by 50%, but it'll, you know, it'll be something on that order. And even that I don't think is enough to increase the overall ballistic coefficient of the station. But it's at net, like the more I think about it, the more complicated the problem gets. <laughs> you better, you better move on before I, I get even deeper <laughs> into this. Okay. So as far as uh, the power generation uh, is concerned, right? So right now we're seeing 160 kilowatts coming. Uh, from the current uh, eight arrays. Ish. Well, yeah, 160. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. There, there's a huge variance, but we're not going to talk about the variance. Yeah. Yeah, not a, yeah, not a, a nice tilde in front of all these numbers. So <laughs> roughly 100, yeah. 160 kilowatts, you know, being drawn now kind of as a benchmark. And they're, you know, anticipating, though, that by blocking the uh, the saws with these new iRoses, you would uh, actually get that 160 from the original ones uh, down to 95 kilowatts. Okay, so that's a little increase there. However, what you're replacing them with, though, or what you're blocking them with are new arrays that are more efficient, like we've been talking about. And as a result, they should be adding 120 kilowatts. So if you do 160 minus 95 plus 120, end of the day value is that you're going from 160 up to 215 kilowatts. And so that's a pretty big jump. They're reporting, you know, uh, anywhere from 20 to 30 percent, uh, right? Because there's going to be some variations, so roughly, you know, 25 uh, percent extra. If you just do the math, though, uh, 160 going up to 215 kilowatts, that's a 35 percent increase. But that's, you know, that's a nice, that's a big jump in terms of, you know, now, you know, you've got yeah. those along with these new batteries, right? That we've been hearing about from all these spacewalks for the last, you know, year or so. It's going to be really good because, you know, station, I mean, technology is just getting better and better. Uh, now we're going to be having uh, larger crews going to station, right? We're going to have uh, larger station, you know, crews up there now, uh, like we have currently, and so uh, it's pretty timely, you know, or, and appropriate. And also the the rollout's really quick, as we'll talk about. <laughs> like this is coming fast. This isn't going to be something in you know, twenty twenty six. Well, it, it's it's funny that you mention um, timing because I, I thought this was actually a little unexpected to me because you know we're talking about um, potentially ending uh, the ISS program in the near future, right? Like it, we keep bumping up against it and we're going, mm. oh, are we going to extend it? Are we going to extend it? Uh, okay, go ahead and extend it. Oh, maybe we'll end it. Maybe we're going to not extend And it's just like, mm -hmm. this actually makes me really happy that we are actually investing in ISS to, to the point where uh, NASA was considering, you know, quote unquote, replacing all eight saws or installing eight new irosas. And they actually did sort of this calculation because Performing each of these installations takes two, well, three spacewalks. You need, uh, uh, I'll let you talk about that later, Dennis, but it takes three spacewalks. Mm -hmm. Some of these tasks can be performed on others, uh, on previous spacewalks. But I mean, this is a lot of time investment at, on top of the purchase cost, uh, the support and operations, like all of this. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
NASA considered replacing all eight, but instead they're just going to replace six because it's like the minimum requirement that they need. Like it's the, it's the sweet spot between spending time working on upgrades and actually getting a power increase. And so, you know, the, these calculations are ongoing and yada, yada, but like this is an investment in the station and it is taking time out of what we're currently doing, the benefit that we're extracting from the station, it's time away from science to do this. And so the, the ongoing life of the station is valued enough to take short-term uh, decreases in science for long-term increases in capabilities. That's a wonderful point. That's that, uh, that, that has me even like, I, I, so this snuck up on me for sure. Um, mm. And I was just wondering, like, or my, my reaction was more like, this is cool and exciting. But now there's also kind of a bit of an optimism there yeah. as well. Because, I mean, I love Station. I want to keep that up there as long as yeah. possible. I mean, you just think it's, it's just amazing. So who's building these things, Dennis? This is going to be developed and built by Boeing. And so they, you know, already have, you know, an existing, uh, you know, ISS contract, you know. And uh, basically, it's a $103 million modification to get these uh, up on Station uh, and you know, they must have been doing this or preparing for this for years now because they did have a little uh, uh, prototype, essentially, that they uh, uh, had on station in 2017. But um, this is this is all rolling out soon. So I'll talk about that a, a bit later. But ultimately, yeah. So Boeing, you know, is, you know, the headline company that, you know, is responsible for these. But in in, in detail, it's, uh, it's a subsidiary of their Spectrolab, which is the one making the cells. Uh, these are the same uh, panels that are going to be used to power uh, Starliner, and I guess did power Starliner during its uh, semi-functional flight uh, that it had, uh, wow, what was this, two Chris uh, a year ago, a little over a year ago, right? Uh, Christmas time-ish of uh, 2019, I guess. And so um, these solar cells are the XTJ prime uh, kind that are going to be, yeah, the same ones using uh, that are used to power Starliner. And then um, as far as the... Uh, the structural bit of the array, because right as you mentioned, um, this is something that's kind of rolled out. You know, it looks kind of like a, uh, I mean, it's you know, it's a cylinder like a scroll that's basically being uh, rolled out uh, from one direction nicely. Yeah, that's by uh, uh, Deployable Space Systems or DSS, and so they're the ones that you know have uh, come up with the structure. And this uh, is something that has gone on station before, and so um, a prototype, which was just a single a single track of, you know, photovoltaics, like a single blanket of them, uh, was uh, the uh, ROSA demo. And so that stands for Rollout Solar Array. So when we're saying iROSA, this is the ISS ROSA, even though they make the I lowercase I as though it's an <laughs> iPad or iPhone, which I'm not going to get into too much. But in any event, uh, ROSA was... Uh, Actually flew on station in 2017. Uh, it's really cool. There's great videos and it was pretty neat what they did with this. And so, you know, they basically, you know, had the uh, space station uh, remote uh, RMS uh, or Canada Arm 2 um, with Dexter in all its flaily glory, uh, <laughs> grab, you know, this Rosa and, you know, uh, extend it out to a safe location where they wanted to basically check, you know, the engineering bit of it, right? Can it, can it roll out and roll back safely? So they rolled it out successfully. It did a great job. Uh, it's a pretty look interesting looking panel. They threw quite, it looks like almost like a NASCAR, uh, right. you know, vehicle in terms of how many logos and things they had slapped on the sides. They had it out for a week, uh, kind of testing it, you know, and everything uh, was good enough for that to be, you know, a successful uh, demo mission, even though I thought this was neat. They couldn't uh, roll it back. Mm -hmm. uh, they had trouble with the retraction. And so they decided to jettison it. 
unless you kind of stretch, you know, the definition, is this the largest thing that's been jettisoned from the station? It it might be. <laughs> Cuz it's pretty darn big. I mean, even this this prototype was pretty pretty large and you know you don't jettison you know you know supply vehicles you know when you unbirth them you know what i mean like that doesn't count as a jettison but i mean just as far as something that was kind of like tossed off i wonder if this was the biggest thing that they ever kind of tossed off station or elsewhere could be yeah yeah it really depends on how you define largest um certainly i think it's pretty easy to say that yeah it's the uh, if you're measuring the longest axis of a thing probably but I would be surprised if this thing took up more volume than like suit sat, which was, you know, the size of a, of a suit. And certainly some of the antennas that have been thrown off of the Russian segment might, might have been longer. I don't know. That's, that's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I, I say it's, it's, it's not that heavy. It's only like about 700 pounds, Rosa. Maybe there were heavier things too. But in any event, that's just what I thought. Like that, this is, this is a pretty big thing to be, you know. Uh, jettisoning off station so uh really cool you should check out those videos we'll have one of them in the notes uh the show notes for sure and one other like last interesting fact about you know this sort of rosa system is this is what's going to be incorporated into gateway uh in particular it's a power propulsion element ppe you know as you can imagine right this is kind of the next generation you know nasa uh solar arrays and so these are going to be the ones that'll be on uh, gateway and sorry to to do a little bit of a backstep here i know that you mentioned that it's the rollout is like a um a canister that that rolls out the rigid structure did you talk about how that rigid structure becomes rigid i did not and just that it's it's I guess one difference between this versus the um the saws, right? The the, the traditional ones is that the uh the rigid structure lies on the outside of the the panels, right? And so it's not there's that's why there, that's part of the reason why there isn't that large gap between uh the pair of them on the iroses that are going to ultimately uh, get placed to station. But I mean, Ben, I could tell you're you're excited about talking about these. How about you? <laughs> you describe them in, uh, in as much detail. What as I think them. is really interesting is that the saws have a truss structure that origami's flat in the canister on the right up from uh, the, the right up on shuttle. And then it, it deploys by um, kind of almost like a scissor mechanism as the truss puffs out. But the truss is rigid the entire time. You can see it better on the Rosa demonstrator, but iRosa um, instead has an extreme version of a tape measure where it's, uh, um, I believe it's, it's probably like spring steel or something that wants to curl into a tube, but they roll it out flat and then roll it up in the canister the wrong direction. So it, so it bends against the opposite axis of what it wants to, uh, what it wants to do. And so you go from a floppy tape to a rolled tube automatically. And I think Colin in the chat pointed out that it does this without a motor to push it out. Um, you basically unlatch it and the desire of this material to form a tube um, actually sucks it out of the two uh, out of the canister as it were i think i made this analogy before it kind of works like a pop bracelet you, do you remember or like a snap yeah, bracelet, a slap bracelet. Those called. yeah mm. or like yeah. a tape measure yeah 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 a, a, a slap bracelet is a bi-stable system where it can either be out straight or rolled up um, i believe that this is by virtue of the fact that it um self unrolls i 
I'm pretty sure it's only stable in one orientation. If you let it go and don't restrain it, it's going to roll all the way out and form a tube. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the same. It's like an extreme version of a tape measure. I mean, uh, you know, tape measures famously, uh, well, maybe not famously, but if you've ever had one snap inside the canister, um, it just goes and just like, you can hear the whole thing just like, uh, flying to pieces. Huh. I've never had that happen. How does it snap inside the canister? Oh, if you don't wipe it off, it'll rust. Um, if you, if you, uh, get it wet, it, it'll rust. Um, and I've oh. rusted out a number of them at work until, you know, I learned to just always have paper towels in my pocket anytime it had rained. Uh, before I put tape measures down the ground, I put <laughs> put paper towel in my pocket. That would freak me out if that happened <laughs> near like near me. Yeah, it's not great. All right, so to kind of wrap things up, uh, as far as you know, what's the timeline for all this? Uh, well, it, like I said before, it kind of certainly snuck up on me. The first should be arriving later this year, and by later this year, uh, we're talking March. Um, they uh, they're going to fly uh, on uh, SpaceX cargo dragons, um, in particular the unpressurized trunk, and uh, three supply missions should be enough to get all six uh, of the new iRoses to station. And so, uh, like I said, in just, you know, a handful of months in May, uh, we could expect the first uh, pair up there. Of course, they won't be installed instantaneously, but, um, you know, they'll be on station in just, you know, five months from now, this recording. And uh, and then the next uh, supply, uh, the next pair will be sent to station in April and then September of next year. And so within, you know, uh, what's the math? Nine plus, you know, 12 is like within... 21 months or so, we should have them all on the ISS. Progress has already actually started. So of the three uh, EVAs that Ben uh, uh, referred to that are necessary, uh, the first are ones that, you know, can be done now, which is just removing these H fixtures from the existing saws. So these were uh, part of just, you know, the there are structural elements that were kind of uh, not important once the arrays were on orbit, but they uh, are basically still there. They left them and they're kind of would get in the way of putting these eye roses in front of the saws. And so last July, um, uh, Chris Cassidy and Bob Benkin uh, removed them from the base of two uh, the port side arrays. And so it's already happening. As for the other two EVAs for each iRosa installation. Uh, the first is to set up this modification kit uh, that'll you know be able to go and you know, actually physically place the thing there. And then the second EVA will be for the installation itself. This is something that I kind of, uh, we joked about the, uh, the, the image of the station, uh, a really cool rendering that gives you a good sense of the scale and size of these in terms of area compared to the ex- existing arrays. But because the station nomenclature is so rough, I think I'm going to try to approach this from this direction, right? Imagine you're looking at the station the same way you're always looking at the station, you know, in like 99% of the images of it, right? Where the, uh, US, uh, segment is kind of, at you, like aimed at you, and you've got the Russian segment, you know, in the background. Now, in that case, left and right are flipped. So starboard is actually on the left, port is on the right. Just from left to right, right, you got the four big honking pairs of arrays. From left to right, there's going to be one Irosa, two Irosas, one Irosa, and then two Irosas. So kind of like a checkerboard sort of thing almost. They're not quite a checkerboard. It's going to look like two, I don't know, two little L's. I should have stopped while I was ahead. It's going to be one and then two and then one and then two. So it's going to be a little variation there. It's not going to be symmetric uh, about the center of the station, but um, that's ultimately what they how they plan on uh, setting these things up. 
And um, like we had talked about uh, earlier, I mean, I don't think I would even need to say this because we already talked about how, you know, this is useful because they're already going to be on the beta gimbal assemblies and uh, able to track some. Yeah, I have to say this is, you know, in conclusion, very impressive that it's being done so quickly. That's the thing that stands out to me like more than anything. It's just it's almost like they kind of got station upgrades down to a science, you know, mm-hmm. um, or I guess like more up one. Well, mm-hmm. and, and not only not only upgrades, but EVAs out on the far edges of the truss. Like that's not an easy thing to do. And with all these battery replacements, you know, they've certainly done work out there in the past. But I mean, it's just been really intense intensive uh mm-hmm. robotics and um actual human evas um they i think i think you're right i think they've really got this down to science now they know what to expect you know there's probably some value also to if this is something we're going to want to put on uh on lunar gateway you know oh yeah um being able to you know actually try to deploy them in leo uh especially when the uh, prototype demo uh, had an issue with retracting uh, the panels, although I guess you wouldn't want to retract them. Yeah, that seems like a bonus. (laughs) That would be something for a deep dive in the future. How could you retract them? Um, how do you retract a tape measure? Yeah, if they if they were passive and there was no motors, you know. Involved. Well, well, no, 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 no. There's no motor to extend it, but there is a motor to retract it. That's an easy answer. Yeah, the <laughs> the motor um, performs the same function as the spring inside of a tape measure. See, smart people thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's now do the three short and sweets. Right. Insights Mole is finally retired. After two years of struggling to get its subsurface heat flow probe to burrow, NASA has made the decision to cease efforts in deploying the Insight Lander's Mole. Though Insight's mission has been extended through the end of 2022, the Mole probe will no longer be used. NASA has concluded that the regolith of the Elysium Planitia region on Mars has different properties that are causing the probe to slip as it hammers down into the surface. Insight will use its robotic arm to partially bury the cable attached to the mole in order to reduce thermal noise in its data. Troy Lee Hudson, HP Cubed lead at JPL, is quoted by Air and Space magazine. He describes seeing the initial mole back out. Am I seeing this right? Am I looking at the images in the wrong order? That was my brain going through the stages of grief. I was in denial. I knew what I was seeing could spell the end of the mole's work. But even if it didn't, I knew the path back was going to be a long, hard slog. And it has been. That's brutal. Yep, so long, so long mole. Yeah, we've uh, we've been talking about that for, I guess, yeah, two years now. It seemed like there was hope, you know? They were able to get it into an extent, but the arm can't push it anymore, so... Yep, well, they gave it the old college try, as they say, so... Mm. And then, uh, next up, the SLS test fire shuts down early, so, yeah. The eighth and final test in the SLS Green Run campaign at Stennis Space Center was supposed to last eight minutes, but the SLS first stage, with its four RS-25 engines, shut down after 60 seconds. The safe shutdown was triggered automatically by onboard software when a major component failure was detected on Engine 4. The exact nature of what went wrong is still not known, but a flash was noticed between the thermal protection blanket and Engine 4. While the four-engine ignition and initial 109% throttle portion of the test was successful, no throttle down or throttle up or gimbal maneuvers were performed. It remains to be seen if a second hot fire test will be necessary before the core stage is shipped to Kennedy Space Center. So, I guess we'll be talking about that later on. Mm, That's big news. 
Finally, uh, China proposes Jupiter mission that may include Callisto landing. China's space agency has revealed plans for two Jupiter concepts. The Jupiter-Callisto orbiter would fly by several irregular satellites before entering a polar orbit around Callisto, with a lander possibly as part of the mission profile. Being the outermost of Jupiter's largest moons, it requires less fuel to reach and is farther away from Jupiter's harsh radiation field. The other mission concept, the Jupiter System Observer, would focus on Io, the innermost of the large Jovian moons. After a series of Ionian flybys, the spacecraft would be sent to the Sun-Jupiter L1 Lagrange point, providing an unprecedented vantage point of the Jovian system. Either mission would launch in 2029 with a targeted arrival in 2035. All right, so this week in Spaceflight History, we have just two winners, uh, the Greek and Kyle Foster. That's it. Okay, so uh, our two correct guesses this week are the Greek and Kyle Foster. And uh, the clue from last week was simulated launch, not so simulated conflagration. And I did what I called in the Discord chat an ultra cringe um, because we also had two other guesses that were incorrect that were guessing Apollo one. And I, it totally slipped my, I didn't, I didn't realize that, uh, that we were, uh, approaching the Apollo one anniversary. And like, I, I should know this. I don't think Ben Hallett will mind, uh, if I, uh, if I mention what he said, he, he said, yeah, I didn't guess this week because, you know, it's not, it's not cool to do a, a fake out that involves Apollo one. And you're right. <laughs> I did an unintentional fake out. Um, and like, I guess this is, you know, an unintentional Apollo one joke. I, I, I really feel embarrassed about it. I, I'm sorry. It wasn't intentional. So if that was, uh, disheartening or offensive to you in particular, listener. I, I, I'm sorry. Um, that, that's my fault. So the actual, uh, this week in spaceflight history event, uh, this week is the 20th of January, 1967. S4B503 explodes at Douglas due to an incorrect weld fill material. So, um, the, S4B is probably my favorite rocket stage of all time, partially because it is a kick-ass uh, rocket stage. It's a rocket stage that uh, multiple of them went to the moon, multiple, you know, several of them slammed into the surface of the moon, several of them went into heliocentric orbit. Um, we've seen them come back around from the other side of their heliocentric orbit and mistaken it for, um, a rock and then realized that it was an S4B. Like it's, it's such <laughs> a cool, uh, vehicle, not least because it was uh, constructed and tested in Sacramento, which is very close to where I used to live. Obviously, they have multiple S4Bs that were in production. So if you're bad at remembering serial numbers uh, like I am, uh, if a vehicle's got a name uh, like Endurance or Enterprise, I got it. I know I know exactly which shuttle and which uh, dragon that is, right? But if it's got a serial number, I'm never going to remember it. So... Um, there are two major categories, well, three major categories. If it's an S4B with a letter, that is a test article that was never intended to fly. If it is S4B2 something, it was intended to fly on a Saturn 1B. If it's uh, Saturn 4B5 something, it was intend to, intended to fly on Saturn 5. So the, the five is easy. <laughs> the two does not connect to Saturn 1B for me. But 
S4B503 was intended uh, to fly on Apollo 8. So when 503 is on the test stands, uh, you know that this is acceptance testing and not like development testing. And uh, 503 was uh, installed on the Beta 3 stand at the Sacramento Test Center uh, in January of 1967. And they're getting ready to do this, you know, full duration burn and just do like a total pretend mission. And what's a little confusing about this is that the countdown is not related to when the S4B ignites. It's related to when the S1C ignites, right? the first stage of the stack. Uh, and so they get to T minus zero um, and do a, a simulated liftoff. And then you have uh, a period of time where the S4B is sitting around waiting for its turn. They actually did two countdowns uh, for this test campaign. The first one was aborted at T plus 150 seconds. And the problem turned out to be dirt on the tape readout head. So the computer tape transport uh, stopped reading out correctly. Um, and it took them an hour to realize that it was just dirt on the readout head. Okay, darn. They recycled and started a second countdown. Um, this one ended at 11 seconds before, before the S4B would have ignited. Now in my notes, I wrote this as T minus 11, but it's not T minus 11. It's T plus something. Um, basically the, the terminal countdown ends before the S4B ignites and it ends with a rapid unplanned disassembly. 503 was completely destroyed. There was severe damage to the test stand, but no human injuries, which is fantastic. So what the heck caused this thing to explode 11 seconds before it was even supposed to ignite its engine? It turns out um, it was actually one of the helium spheres that stick out of the bottom of the S4B. Uh, they're mounted on the thrust structure, um, and, and they really just look like little zits on that conical structure. These are titanium ambient temperature helium bottles. Um, there are also other bottles, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but the, these are ambient temperature. Uh, they are pressurized to 3100 PSI. These are, are specifically used to repressurize the LOX tank before they do the on-orbit restart of the engine. What's really interesting is it came down to the weld technique. These tanks, um, since they are such high pressure, um, the welds that are done are a specific type of weld called a, a filler weld, where you actually use a wire uh, almost as like your hot glue. It, you know, if you're, if you're gluing two hot glue sticks together with a third hot glue stick, uh, that third hot glue stick that you're actually melting, uh, to fill in the gap is the, the filler rod, you can think of it. And so the problem is, while the tanks are titanium, the filler material can't be titanium. You actually need a titanium alloy. And so the manufacturer, uh, accidentally, um, used, uh, TI-55A, pure titanium, instead of TI-6AL4V, which is a titanium aluminum alloy. And what, what's kind of crazy is that, um, even though they had the wrong filler material, all of these bottles passed production acceptance and were shipped, 
um, to Douglas. What's really interesting is they weren't actually able to reproduce this issue. Um, so they established an investigation board, which, by the way, uh, found no fault belonging to the operations team. Uh, Douglas had no problem. It was a subcontractor that had the problem. The investigation board actually said that there was no way that the operations team could have identified this issue. So they, um, they tried to reproduce it. They, um, did burst tests, uh, with both types of bottles. Um, they, they used eddy current tests on all the bottles that they had in stock and installed on vehicles to identify what type uh, of filler material was used. I think eddy current tests are pretty cool. Uh, you basically put an electromagnet up against uh, the material you want to identify and you measure uh, how much of an eddy current is induced in the material. Different materials have uh, different uh, conductivities and so you, you get different eddy currents induced inside the material. But they, they went and identified all of them. They found some of the, uh, defective bottles and pulled them off. Then they grabbed some known good bottles and, and pulled those out. And they used both, they subjected both of these bottles to a number of tests to try to figure out or to, to try to replicate the issue. Um, first they, uh, they did burst tests focusing on thermal shock where they pressurized each type of bottle and then hit them with a stream of liquid nitrogen. Uh, that didn't cause a rupture. Then they did impact tests trying to get them to explode by hitting them with 44 pound steel weights and then dropping the things from 20 feet. And neither of these actually, uh, were able to get them to, to explode. We don't know as a species why these particular bottles exploded. Well, we, we have, we have some additional clues, um, but we don't know what exact se uh, series of environments and circumstances led to the explosion, I guess. Um, so once they did these failed burst tests, I guess a, a failed burst test is a successful test. Um, once they had the successful failure, they cut them open and did some post-mortem testing. And they actually found that there was titanium hydrides uh, forming in the weld material. These, these are helium bottles, not hydrogen bottles. So I'm not, a, I, I'm not a metallurgical guy, but apparently, um, titan, pure titanium can form titanium hydride components. I, I believe that's why they wanted the, um, aluminum alloy instead. I, I, I'm assuming that it's, uh, resistant to the formation of these hydrides. Um, but in any event, they weaken the material. And I believe what they found was, um, in the margins of the weld, uh, they found these hydrides, uh, building up. And the problem is if they eat into the titanium weld, so further down into the actual weld, that's when you wind up getting strength failures or strength degradation. And so even once they had identified that, yes, indeed it is, uh, hydrides forming in the bad welds. Uh, they did tensile strength tests, um, to see how affected these bottles were, but they were inconclusive. And of course we didn't have access to the bottles that actually failed. Um, so maybe it's the, 
time that the failed bottle sat on the shelf. I, I, I don't know, but it, it sounds like it, it's probably um, some series of circumstances that are leading to a lot of titanium hydride formation. So even though they weren't able to reproduce the failure, they also replaced all of the off-spec bottles. Now, this is only the uh, the ambient temperature bottles on the bottom of the stage. There are additional bottles inside the liquid hydrogen tank. So inside the liquid mm. hydrogen tank, you don't have filler welds. Um, I, I guess it's um, maybe a, a electrical welding, which just like zap welds. Um, but in any event, you have um, lower uh, pressures because you've got colder hydrogen. You know, it's inside the helium tank that you would have helium floating around, uh, able to form hydrates. Um, but it, the hydrates must be forming in contact with the atmosphere. You know, I don't, I don't know what the, the actual chemistry here is, but in, in any event, <laughs> uh, they didn't have to replace the cold bottles inside the tanks because they didn't have, uh, filler welds. So they weren't affected by the issue. So just, just to, um, get us back into history. Uh, this test, th this failure happened on the 20th of January. By uh, May 29th, they began stand refurbishment. They had to do all their investigations before they were approved to spend money uh, on, on rebuilding the stand. And the stand refurbishment took about 10 weeks. So um, the Beta 3 stand didn't have didn't have anything interesting happen uh, until like. Uh, August, I guess, uh, t 10 weeks would be August. However, the next test that happened at the Sacramento Test Center was actually the next week, the 27th of January, because they had extra stands. So they were able to charge on even though one of their stands uh, was exploded. And one of the lasting consequences of this is that S4B504 through 506 got renamed to 503N to 505N. Uh, 506N was constructed out of spares, and then 507 was the original uh, article that they were going to use. Like the, the nomenclature things here are kind of a boring little tidbit, but it's interesting when you hear, if you hear about Apollo 8 flying with S4B503N, now you know why it, it was 503N instead of 502 or 506. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's the echo of, of this issue. In the show notes, we're going to have some really gorgeous photos. I had actually managed to track down some black and white images, uh, but thanks to uh, Mike in the chat, uh, I now have some gorgeous color images to show you of the exploded components. And yeah, we're, this is not a happy rocket. All right. That's this week in spaceflight history. So two rocket failures in a row, but next week, maybe, I don't know. We might go for three, but maybe not, so I won't give that away. But anyway, um, the date range is the 26th of January through the 1st of February. And what is the clue for that, Dennis? All right, well, I'm going to do my best. Next week in 1990, like a Mayatnik. Like a Mayatnik. I'm going to say, I hope my accent was good enough, like a Mayatnik. So if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got three launches and one other event. Yeah, first launch is Electron. It got uh, delayed from last week, the 16th, when it was supposed to fly. Uh, spaceflight now is citing a sensor issue, so that's nice and vague. Um but uh, this is going to be an electron flying 
the mission Another One Leaves the Crust, um, which is one of their rare single uh, payload missions, right? That's going to be launching on Wednesday the 20th at somewhere between 0730 UTC and 0750 UTC. 20-minute launch window there. And then the next day on January 21st, Thursday, is something that is very much not a single payload mission. And so this is a Falcon 9 Block 5, uh, the Transporter 1 uh, mission, which is a dedicated uh, sun-synchronous orbit rideshare. And so it's going to be dozens of small microsats and nanosats for commercial and government customers uh, going to uh, sun-synchronous orbit. So again, that's uh, that looks like an instantaneous launch window on January 21st at 1424 UTC, uh, launching, of course, at Cape Canaveral, Slick 40. And then the day after that, on the 22nd, uh, is the, well, hopefully the Starship S9 10-kilometer flight. So fingers crossed for that one. Uh, yeah, so that's going to be from the SpaceX launch facility in Texas, obviously. And the window for that is 1400 UTC through 2359. So basically, yeah, from 2 o'clock till midnight UTC. So nice big old launch window there. I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that this is likely to get pushed back. Um, what I, what I've heard is that um, they're unsure about SN9's uh, flight readiness. Either the replacement flap isn't doing so well, or they suspect additional damage um, from its little um, lean up against the side of the silo event. Mm. Um, so we'll we'll see if that actually flies. Let, let's cross our fingers. Then after that, we have a spacewalk. Um, so this is Spacewalk 69. Um, they're doing uh, upgrades to Columbus. Uh, this is going to feature Mike Hopkins and Victor Glover. Uh, the spacewalk is scheduled to begin uh, on Wednesday, the 27th at 7.05 a.m. Eastern. Coverage will begin at 5.30 a.m. And, uh, you know, they, they always cover donning spacesuits and all the checks and depressurization before the spacewalk officially begins. And so those are your upcoming space flight events. All right. And with that, let's deal with the old show. I don't know why I just said old there. <laughs> God, Slap show on the hood. <laughs> let's deal with the old show. Kick the tires. She's still running. This, all right. This, this show can hold so many correction burns. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links or Orbital Podcasts on both and you can talk through directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And if you join us on Discord, keep an eye out for some gaming that we're going to be doing in the coming weeks. So it should be fun times oh, yeah. every time we do that. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that is it. And we will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.